so good to see you in the house of the Lord on Memorial Day weekend. Just congratulations to you for not being at the lake right now. I just want to give you some props for that, and uh, we are so glad that you're here. As Pastor Allen said, my name is Tyler, and I get to serve as a student and young adult pastor here. What that means is every Wednesday night I get to hang out with these students. A lot of them are sitting up here. And uh, get to pour into them and watch them discover what God is calling them to in their life and watch them experience His presence. And it is an honor and a joy to get to do that. I also get to serve as the Young Adult Pastor, which is a ministry we just launched in January where we hang out at the bridge. Do I have any young adults in here? Anybody that comes to the bridge? All right, I was about to say, they're all at the lake, as I just mentioned that you're not. But we have some in here, so... uh, we're so glad that they're here, and it's, I don't really count that as work or anything like that because it's, it's a lot of fun to get to hang out with them. And uh, I, my beautiful wife, Kayla, and I have been married for nearly 10 years. We have two little boys who are seven and five. Their names are Weston and Easton because some people ask God for direction. We just chose direction for the name of our children, and um, so made it really easy. But... I am uh, so excited to be here. Before I do get into the message, I do just want to give honor to our pastor, Pastor Allen and Miss Kathy. Uh, a lot of people say that a lot of people say their church is led by a man and a woman of God, but I want to let you know that it is not a phrase. It's not just a figure of speech. It is true for this house that we are led by a man and a woman of God, and I give honor to him today. Let's give it up, to Pastor Allen. Appreciate you guys so much, and appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, Kayla and myself felt like God spoke to us to come and to serve in this capacity. But what gave us peace to be willing to say yes to that was the fact that we really felt the integrity and the heart of Pastor Allen and Miss Kathy was something that we wanted to submit to and learn from. And so that is a that is a privilege and an honor to be here today. And I'm just so glad to be able to serve in the capacity that I can. So we're continuing on this series called Flannel Graph. Heroes, it is a drum roll every time I say that because it feels like I'm going to get it mixed up and say the wrong thing. But as I get into the message today, I'm going to be reading from the book of 1 Kings and the book of 2 Kings in just a few minutes. But I kind of wanted to tell you a story to get you going in the same line of thinking that I'm on as, as we go into it. And so I'm going to tell you this story. Before I do, though, I just want to, can we pray over this moment together and just ask that God would move in the service and, and meet us in a few moments in the altar moment because that's what all this is about is encountering His presence. So can we bow our heads together? God, I thank You for who You are. I thank You for Your Spirit that we've already felt today. God, we thank You for the opportunity to live in this great nation, and we understand the freedom that we experienced wasn't free. God, today we honor those men and women that gave their lives for our freedom. We just pray that You would bless us as we exercise our freedom through worship. God, I pray that You would meet us in a few moments around this altar, and it's in the name of Jesus we ask all these things. Amen. Amen. Well, for those of you who don't know, uh, before I came here to serve as student young adult pastor, for the last couple of years, I had served as a lead pastor in smaller churches. And so when I came here, I was reintroduced to the beautiful thing that is student ministry. And let me tell you what I was reminded of through serving in that capacity. I was reminded of just how annoying teenage romance is. And all the parents of teenagers said, Amen. To that. What I mean by teenage romance, I mean, like, I've said five words to him, but I know, I know that he is the one. Or maybe I even said one word, but we, we've been texting for like two days, and I'm pretty sure we're getting married next year. We know it's coming. Or I've dated six people in the last month, but this one is different. I just, I feel it is different. 
And, and I feel like that I can speak to this and really talk about it without really holding back or feeling bad because it wasn't all that long ago that I was one of those annoying teenagers in an annoying relationship that was just being annoying about it, right? Like it wasn't that long ago. Me and Kayla started dating when I was 17 and she was 16. And one thing you need to know about my personality is that I don't really do stuff halfway. If I'm going to get into something, I'm going to be all about it. And so a couple years ago, I started playing golf, and I'm not good at golf, but I decided I was going to play. And so if I was going to go out there and I was going to get 120, 150 strokes a time, I was at least going to look good while I was playing. And so I went and bought all the nicest. I didn't go to Walmart and buy like one polo. I went to Under Armour and Nike and got the good stuff because I at least wanted to look good if I wasn't going to play good because that's my personality. I want to get all into it. I want to be all about it. And so when I started dating Kayla when I was 17, I was like head over heels, just absolutely. She was the every thought, every breath, everything I talked about. It all revolved around her. You've all been around that teenager, right? That's, that's how it is. And obviously, look at me. She felt the same way. I mean, that was a joke. Thank you for not laughing. It was, that was very, I appreciate that. Um, so we started dating and it was beautiful and you know, it was like tiptoe through the tulips and the sky was blue and love songs were playing. And there was violins everywhere and it was just beautiful and we got married and now we have two kids and it's a wonderful love story. But in the middle of that love story, there was a terrible tragedy that took place. And even now, 10 years removed from it, it's hard for me to talk about. Um, and so you're going to have to bear with me if I get a little emotional. But what happened was I lost my cell phone. And... Um, see, that was a problem... Because she lived 450 miles away from where I lived. And so that was our means of communication. If we weren't talking, we were texting. And if we weren't texting, we were, it was because we were in a place where there was no service. And so we were scouring every square footage of property around us to try to find one bar so that we could maintain communication. Because when you love someone, you talk to them 24-7. That was our logic, right? And so one day I lost my phone. And the way it happened was that I decided to take some initiative and be a man and like do something for myself. And so I went into the kitchen and I made myself a sandwich. And that was a big deal for me at 17. And so I got it all ready. I got it on the plate. And I went into the living room and I decided that I was going to eat my sandwich, watch TV, and text my girlfriend while sitting on the couch. I was about to live every 17-year-old's dream. It was going to be a beautiful moment, but on my way into the living room, I did the inventory that we all do, you know, the whole wallet, keys, phone, and when I went for my phone, it wasn't there. And so I was like, well, this this can't happen, so i got to have my phone at all times, and so went into the kitchen, looked on the counter, it wasn't there, looked where the bread was, it wasn't there. I even looked in the refrigerator because I wouldn't put it past me for it to be sitting in the refrigerator. It wasn't there, and so I thought, where could my phone be? This launched a search. And how many of you know about 90% of the time, if you don't know where your phone is, go to the bathroom. It's probably in there. And so I went in the bathroom and it wasn't there. I went in my room and I threw the comforter off the bed. I threw the pillow. I lifted the six tons of laundry that characterize every 17-year-old boy's bedroom. And it wasn't anywhere to be found. And so finally, after about 20 minutes, I decided that I needed to do something. And so I went and I grabbed the house phone because we still had a house phone. And I called Kayla and I said, I just need you to know that I haven't moved on in these 20 minutes. I still love you, and I'm still alive. I've just mislocated my phone. And so, after all that searching, of course, I've been carrying my sandwich around. I'm famished at this point. And so I decide, you know what? I can look for my phone later. I just need to go sit down, eat my sandwich, and at least watch TV, even though I can't text my girlfriend. And so, I walk into the living room, and I sit down. And mind you, I've been carrying the plate in my hand the whole time. 
So I sit down and I set the plate on my lap. And when I moved the plate out of my hand, in the palm of my hand was the cell phone that I just spent the last 30 minutes of my life looking for. And I promise you, I promise you that I am not that dumb of a person. But I I did not know where it was. The, The crazy thing about that is that I expended such a great amount of energy looking for something that was in my possession the whole time. I mean, I absolutely went crazy looking for that phone. I made my room look like the DEA had just gotten a tip that I was hiding something, and it was in my hand the whole time. Today we're continuing a series about some of the characters or the personalities in Scripture that we can draw from their life and put some principles into practice that can really change our situation. Last week, Pastor Allen preached such a beautiful message about Hosea and the fact that God is always looking to bring us back into relationship. He's always looking to redeem us. That's what the gospel story is, that Jesus paid a price for us, that now we can experience relationship. And so last week we were reminded that restoration is always an option with God if we'll just receive it. And it's a great story in, in, in the minor prophet of Hosea, but today I get the privilege to talk to you about another personality in the Old Testament named Elisha. And I think Elisha is one of the most underrated characters in all of Scripture. And I say that because he doesn't get a lot of airtime like Abraham does. He doesn't get a lot of airtime like Moses and David and even Solomon. I mean, these guys that we talk about a lot in the Old Testament, we don't talk about Elisha as much, but did you know that Elisha has the most recorded miracles of anybody in Scripture not named Jesus? I mean, like, he's the one that he absolutely shaped his generation and miracle after miracle, he had audiences with kings. He had opportunities to shift his culture and shift his generation. But we don't talk about him all that often. And I think it's funny when we read Scripture sometimes how we disassociate ourselves from the story. And what I mean by that is that we read about a guy like Elisha or we read about Hosea or we read about David and we think, man, that would have been cool to have lived in their time because... You know, everybody loved God and everybody followed God. And so that's why miracles happened and that's why people were close to God because it was such a good world they lived in. And there was just nothing bad that happened. But last week, Pastor Allen told us about the cycle the nation of Israel went through, that they would be close to God, then they would rebel, then they would go into captivity, then they would be redeemed, and then it would happen again and again. And it's in that cycle that Elisha is introduced into the narrative of Scripture. See, it wasn't a perfect culture, a perfect world that Elisha was put into. In fact, just a few years earlier, Elijah had had a showdown on Mount Carmel that he had invited all the prophets of Baal out, and he had, he had to do that because idol worship was such a major problem in the nation of Israel. And so you see, Elisha comes onto the scene in a culture that is characterized by worshiping things other than God. A culture that is characterized by being far from what God has called them to be. So morality and righteousness was not on their radar at this point. And Elisha steps into that culture. And I think that's beautiful because it shows us that even when the society is messed up, even when the culture is broken, even when sin is everywhere, if one man will say, God, I'm available for your use. God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll be whoever you want me to be. If one person makes themselves available, God can shift an entire generation. And if it's true for Elisha, it's true for you and I today. Because see, I look at my world and my culture and my generation, and what I see is a generation that is characterized by by being so far from what God's called it to be. I mean, sin is everywhere. 
Brokenness is everywhere. Depravity is everywhere. And if we're not careful, we look at our surroundings, we look at our culture, we look at what's going on in our families and the struggles and the hurts and the, and the pains and all the sin that does all that. And what we do is we let the enemy come in and insert his narrative into the situation. And what he says is, well, if your culture is that broken and if your family is that messed up and if you've made all these mistakes, then there's no way that you could ever experience a move of God in your life. And I say that phrase like it's something that we should all understand and we should all know exactly what I'm talking about because we say it in church all the time, a move of God. But what does that even mean? I mean, if I say I want a move of God in my life, you're like, well, yeah, that, that sounds good. Me too. Let's have a move of God. But what do we mean? when we? Does that mean that God fills out a change of address form and he moves across town? Does that mean that God was standing here and now he's going to stand here? What do we mean when we say a move of God? And as I was thinking about that, I wanted to make it clear as we got into the message. And so for the sake of our conversation today... A move of God is a transformational shift of any kind in our lives that comes as a result of divine involvement. In other words, my situation was this, and then I invited God in, and it changed. That's a move of God. It can be the slightest thing. It can be the biggest thing. Whatever it is, a move of God is possible. And the whole point of the message today is for me to let you know that no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what your culture has dictated to you, no matter what your friends and family have said about you, when you make yourself available to God, a move of God is possible and promised in your life. It's something that can happen today. And so when we read the story of Elisha, we see an individual that gives us a pattern for how to experience a move of God, for how to see God move in his life. And so I want to look at two things about the life of Elisha that I believe really show us how to step into a season that God can move. The first thing that I want us to notice about Elisha today is that he embraced being delayed. He embraced being delayed. And that's a big deal because I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we don't like to wait on anything. In fact, several of you got excited when Pastor Allen said the student pastor was preaching because you're like, oh, he's younger, so that means that he doesn't talk as long because he doesn't know as much. But what you don't know is that time management is a sign of maturity, and so we're going to be here for like an hour and a half. And so just buckle up. I'm just kidding. Just a joke. But Elisha embraced being delayed, and we don't like that in our culture, in our society, because look at all the advertisements that you see going on on commercials. They don't talk about the fact that they can do stuff better. They talk about they can do it faster. McDonald's is not one of the largest corporations in the world because of the quality of their product. They're one of the largest corporations in the world because they get you in and out super fast. I mean, from our food to our financing, I mean, even Rocket Mortgage is like, hey, we'll give you a mortgage in two minutes. If you just go online, we're going to take care of all of it. And we don't, we don't talk about, oh, I'm going to go where the food's better. I'm going to go where it's faster. I don't go to where the service is better. I go to where it's faster. And so marketing companies, they ploy this and they play on this. And we eat it up because we're Americans and that's what we do. We do things quickly. We don't necessarily do them well, but we do them quickly. And the problem is, is that we bring this expedited expectation beyond our food and beyond even the financing for our loans or our homes. We bring it into our faith journey as well. And so we think, you know, you come to a church where we say, we want to connect you to your God-given purpose. And you're like, well, that's, that's awesome. I would like to be connected to my God-given purpose. I think I will. And so you begin to pray and say, God, what is my purpose? And when you pray that prayer, God answers and begins to show you some things. And eventually God's going to begin to put callings on your life. And that's where it gets tricky. Because God starts showing you stuff. 
And what we think is, we're like, oh, well, if God's showing me this, then that means that tomorrow I get to have it. So if God calls me to reach the world, then that means that by Friday, I'm going to get an opportunity to go preach in Kenya, right? That means that if God's called me to be an influencer, that I'm supposed to change my culture, then by next week, I'm going to have 100,000 more Instagram followers because I'm connected with my God-given purposes. So that means that my purpose is going to be instantaneous. But that's not the way it works. In fact, Elisha is a case study that shows us that that's not realistic expectations at all. Because we're introduced to Elisha in 1 Kings chapter 19. And when we see him, he's literally minding his own business. He's running a plow with some oxen, just making some money, trying to make ends meet. And all of a sudden, here comes the prophet Elijah, and he throws a piece of material over his shoulders. And Elisha doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't investigate. He doesn't ask what kind of material it is because he's allergic to certain things. He just jumps off his plow and runs after Elijah and says, I understand the significance of what just took place. I understand that you've placed calling on me. I understand that the anointing is now upon me. And so I'm willing to walk after you and I'm willing to learn from you. First, let me go say goodbye to my family. And so Elisha goes and he burns his plows and he cooks the oxen that he was just driving a few minutes ago. And he has a party with his family and he tells all of them goodbye. And then he shows up to Elijah the next day and says, you know what? I'm here. I'm reporting for duty. What do you want me to do? And this is a powerful moment of obedience and radical faith because when he burned his plows, that meant he couldn't go back to the old life. That meant that he was separated from who he used to be. When he said goodbye to his family, he wasn't just saying, I'll see you in a month. He was saying, I probably won't ever see you again. Because he was stepping away from that. He was walking in radical faith. And so it seems that if you walk in that kind of faith and that kind of obedience, then next week you should be on the conference circuit. Next week, you should be one of the most notarized people that ever has done anything in your culture. But that's not what we see because this story ends with him burning the plows, having a party, reporting to Elijah, and then chapter 19 closes. And we read chapter 20, and we read chapter 21, and we read chapter 22, and we read 2 Kings chapter 1, and we see a whole lot of names. And we see a whole lot of historical events, and we see a whole lot of prophets that are doing stuff. What we don't see is Elisha. He doesn't make the headlines at all for eight years. Nobody sees anything that Elisha is doing. And that just doesn't seem fair. Because Elisha obeyed exactly what God called him to obey. He did exactly what God had called him to do. But what it got him was not notoriety. What it got him was obscurity. He had to stand in the background because he, here's a truth that Elisha shows to us that some of us, that it's still, I'm still grasping it. It's this, that a season of calling is almost always followed by a season of covering. Amen. There, is a, there is a beauty in the hiding, yeah. in the waiting. But see, because we've Americanized our entire religious experience, what we think is that the American dream applies to our walk with God. And so I always have to seek promotion. I always have to seek a pay raise, a greater title, greater influence, a higher following. That's what I got to go after. And so we're trying to climb and we're trying to get up. But what God's saying is, I just want you to sit in the background for a season. Because there's something that has to be done before you can accomplish your purpose. And it won't happen in the spotlight. See, the removal of all the things that are keeping you from your purpose aren't going to happen on the platform. It's going to happen in the prayer closet when nobody else can see you. When nobody else knows what's happening, when nobody else knows what you're going through, that's when God is shaping you and molding you. Elisha submits. He allows delay to take place. For eight years, 
He walks alongside Elijah in obscurity, no one knowing his name. So I got to just be real honest and vulnerable with you here and let you know that I'm not preaching this to you as someone that has it all figured out. I'm not preaching this as like, this is what I have done, and so you should really get your act together. Because I too have a calling of God on my life. And I too have felt God speak and say, I have a purpose for you. And then I've had dreams burst into my heart and into my mind and into my spirit from that calling. But there are days that my days don't look like my dreams. And what happens is, is if we're not careful, we take on a victim mentality when it comes to God and His timing. So we say, God, why did you open the door for them and I'm still sitting here with this door shut in front of me? God, why did they get the spotlight and nobody knows who I am? Why are they successful and I'm not successful? And we don't understand that the delay is not a problem. In fact, it's a blessing because here's the thing. Delay is the greatest tool of protection that God will ever use in your life. Because the reason that he holds us back is not because God gets some kind of pleasure out of watching us suffer. It's not because he loves to just make us wait on things. It's because he understands that one of two things is true. Either we're not ready to stand on the platform yet, or the platform isn't strong enough to hold us. And so he is holding us back until it is time for us to step into our purpose. Elisha embraced delay. When God issued the key to success in his kingdom in the New Testament... He doesn't say, I want you to climb the ladder as fast as you can at any cost. He doesn't say, I want you to be cutthroat in your tactics and your ethics and eliminate all the competition so that you are the only one remaining and it's a survival of the fittest to see who can be in ministry or who can do something for God. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, God inspired Peter to write this, So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and at the right time, He will lift you up in honor. The key reason God calls us to humility and delay is found in the middle of this verse because it says, at the right time. There is a perfect season, a perfect time to the revelation of your gift. But you have to learn to embrace delay. See, here's what we see in the life of Elisha. Obscurity is not a part of our punishment. It's a part of our process. And if you don't let the process complete itself, you are going to shortchange yourself from what God wants to do in your life. Embrace delay. The second thing that we see in the life of Elisha, and actually before I go to that, let me just talk for a second about what he was doing while he was being delayed. Because was he just sitting around? Was he just, you know, reading the latest book? Was he watching TV? Was he playing video games? Was he trying to network? What was he doing? Because see, a lot of times we think that waiting means that I just kind of take an inactive approach. But we get a glimpse into the activity of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 3 when Jehoshaphat is like, hey, I need a prophet. Elijah is dead. Do you know anybody? Look what his servant said in verse number 11. So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. You know what this servant didn't say? He said, hey, actually there's this guy named Elisha and he is such a gifted communicator. He didn't say, there's this guy, Elisha, and man, I'm telling you, he he looks good, like he's wearing the nicest clothes, everybody likes him, he's good at networking. That wasn't what characterized the man of God that was about to step into one of the most miraculous ministries to grace Scripture. 
What characterized him was not his gift. It wasn't even the intensity with which he climbed the ladder. What characterized him was the intensity with which he served. You want to know how to unlock the power of God in your life in a way that is unimaginable and you can never scratch the surface? Find a need and meet it. Elisha could have been striving and climbing and scratching because after all, the mantle had fallen on him. I mean, he was the chosen one. God had spoken and said, I want him to be the next prophet. He could have said, Elijah, you need to give me some more time on the stage. Or Elijah, you need to give me some more opportunity to speak. But rather than that, he went to Elijah. And rather than saying, hey, I'm the chosen one, you better use me. He said, what can I do for you? Can you imagine the awkwardness of him coming to Elijah and saying, hey, you need me to... uh, You need me to preach for you next week. You need me to maybe lead a small group. You need me to, I don't know, transcribe your notes or something I can do, set up a system for you. And Elijah looked back and he said, actually, I need to wash my hands. But nobody gets put in history books for washing hands. Nobody changes the culture by pouring water on someone's hands unless it's what God's called you to do. And because God had called him to serve, it didn't matter how small it was. Y'all, when, when, when there was a conversation going on in a palace, because Elisha was willing to pour water on somebody's hands, his name came up in the king's quarters. See, you think that you got to be the one that's on the stage so everybody can know you so that God will understand who you are. But if you're pouring hands on a prophet just because God told you to, when he starts handing out blessing and power and appointment, he's going to look for the one that did exactly what he said it was, no matter how large or how small it was. The key to reaching the next level in your experience with God is not found in networking. It's not found in position. It's found in service. The Bible says... The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 40 that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. The mount up with wings like eagles, the run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. We all know that verse. It's on pillows, it's on plaques, it's on t-shirts, it's on whatever you want it to be on. But sometimes we read that and we think that when it says wait on the Lord, that means that we just sit by with our little buzzer like we get at the restaurant until God finally says, okay, it's time for your party to come. But actually that term, that word wait in Hebrew can also be translated to gather. And so the better word picture is when you get to the table in the restaurant and that person comes up to you and says, what can I do for you today? They're waiting on you. And so to wait on the Lord means that I come to him in the midst of my season of hurt, in the midst of my season of delay, in the midst of my season of uncertainty, and I say, God, what can I do for you today? And then he says, here's what I want. And I say, all right, God, let me go get that for you as quickly as possible. Are you sure there's nothing else that I can do? Here's the thing, though. When we go to a restaurant, what I'm not looking for is a waiter that comes to my table. And rather than saying, what can I do for you? They say, here's what I need you to do for me. And so sometimes we try to wait on God and we're coming up to God and we're saying, God, I need this and I need that and I want you to move in this way and I want you to do that and I want you to bless me this way and I want... And he's saying, no, I need you to wait on me. And as you serve and as you fulfill your purpose and as you walk in that, you will renew your strength. As you're doing what nobody sees, you're going to mount up on wings like eagles. As you're serving in whatever capacity, you're going to run and not grow weary and walk and not faint. It's found and it's unlocked through the avenue of service. So he embraced delay. But the second thing that I see is the fact that he embraced being different. 
he didn't think that he had to just be a carbon copy of what had come before him. And it's interesting because this is a realization that he has to come to because he's walking along with Elijah and he's serving him and he had been given the promise by the prophet that if he saw him when he ascended into heaven that he would receive whatever he asked for. And so one day Elijah's like, hey, I want you to stay here. And Elijah's like, "Uh uh-uh. My blessing's locked up in being with you, so I'm not staying here. He asked him three times, and he says, no, I'm with you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you with pursuit and with reckless abandon. And so finally, he, he's followed him. They cross the River Jordan after Elijah hits the water with his robe, and the waters part, and it's, it's, just, it's a normal day in the life of the prophet. And then all of a sudden, a chariot of fire comes and picks him up, and he goes into heaven, and his mantle falls, and it's just real boring stuff that's taking place. And Elisha grabs the mantle, and this is where it gets weird for me. Because what he does is he walks up to the water with the mantle and he hits it and he says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? The waters part and he walks across and that seems like a win. Because any time that you defy the laws of physics by supernatural means, that seems like it's been a good day. But the issue is that Elisha was not called to reproduce the anointing of Elijah. We know that because when he had been asked, what do you want? He said, I want a double portion of your spirit. I want a double portion of your anointing. And so for anybody else to hit the water and say, where's the Lord God of Elijah? Because look, it's Elisha using Elijah's mantle. It's Elisha using Elijah's method. It's Elisha calling on Elijah's God. For anybody else, that's success. And you can literally put a, like, like a plaque right at that moment and say, this is how I was successful. Because I was able to reproduce what Elijah had done. But for Elisha to set up camp there and stay there would have been failure. Because he was called to a double portion anointing. So what does that mean for us? That means that no matter how good your grandpa was, no matter how amazing your dad may have been at his business, no matter how talented your siblings may have been or your mentor may have been, God has not called you to reproduce what they did. God has not called you to be who they were. And see, I struggle with this because my whole family is in ministry. My dad's a pastor. My brother's a pastor. My uncles are pastors. And so when I was 13 years old, I felt God call me into ministry. And I ran from it for six years because every time God would speak to me and say, this is what I want from you, I would say, God, I can't do that because I can't preach like my brother. I can't do that because my dad is so talented and he's such like a good mind and I could never do that. I could never be that person. And finally, one day as I'm sitting there giving God all the reasons that I can't do what he's called me to, he said, wait a minute, I didn't call you to be your brother. I didn't call you to be your dad. I called you because I saw what I had put inside of you. And I saw the talents and the abilities and the personality that I had put inside of you. So don't for a second put a cap on your success or a cap on where you can go based on what everyone else around you has done. Because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are a unique design of a creator that wants to do something that only you can do. Don't make success achieving what someone else has achieved. Let God define what success is in your life. Let God tell you what it is that you're called to be and called to do. He embraces being different. And we see that as in one of the most notable miracles that Elisha has in his entire ministry. Because you see, Elijah was about big moments and epic things. And so Elijah, when he's about to perform a miracle, he says, Hey, get all the prophets of Baal. And bring the nation and meet me on Mount Carmel. 
And then we're going to create an altar and we're going to put a sacrifice there. And then I want to put water all over the altar three times during a drought. And then fire is going to fall from heaven and may the God who answers by fire be God. I mean, like, it's epic in nature. That's the way Elijah did miracles. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that was Elijah's calling. Elisha did things differently. Because when Elisha is about to perform a miracle, what he says is stuff like, hey, could you pass the salt? Or how about just, just add a little bit of flour to that water and it's going to take care of it. He said, do you have any containers in your house? Because you might could use that. He says, hey, I'm going to cut this stick off and I'm going to throw it in a river and it's going to bring back the axe head that yeah. you've lost. Everything that Elisha does is absolutely unremarkable in nature. It's nothing that you're like, hey, I want to do that. I mean, I've never read the book of Elisha and said, oh, I cannot wait to be at dinner tonight and say, pass me the salt. That's going to be awesome. Miracles are going to happen. It's unremarkable, but I think that's beautiful because Elisha embraced the fact that God can use ordinary moments to do extraordinary things. But we like the big flashy stuff, don't we? Especially in church. Because what we think the move of God in our life is wrapped up in is the day that everything is precisely right. And the worship team has got the perfect set. They didn't miss a note. Everything was right. The media has been perfect. Pastor Allen's going to get up and he's going to preach and it's going to be awesome. And then the altar call is going to be just perfect. And I mean, like everything is going to hit at the right time. We're going to feel God's presence and our life is going to be transformed. We think it's in that big moment that everything's locked up. But Elisha shows us that it's not, it's not about the big moments. It's not about big settings and, and, and big context because here's the thing. Your moment of transformation could be driving down the road to work on a Tuesday morning. But if you don't shift the way that you think and you don't begin to look for those moments, the reason that Elisha was able to operate in the miraculous to a greater degree than anyone is because he saw the miraculous in things that nobody else saw it in. He saw the miraculous in materials that everybody else thought was mundane and ordinary. But he said, man, if you've got some some containers, you can take care of that. And so he has this, uh, let me just tell you that story. He has this widow that comes to him, right? And she says, my husband has died and I got a lot of debt. And honestly, I'm scared my kids are going to be taken into slavery. And I think that when she tells him this story, that she was expecting Elisha to say something like, abracadabra, boom, have the money. Or at least tell her, hey, if you'll go over here, they're going to take care of that need for you. But I want you to look at what Elisha says to her because the question that he asks her is not at all what she's expecting. Second, or Second Kings chapter 4, verse 2. He closes this out, this conversation, by saying, tell me, what do you have in your house? She comes to him and says, this is what I need. Expecting him to give her something, but what he does instead is turns her attention to what she already has. And see, we come to God and we're like, I need this. I need you to give me this. I need you to pour it out. I need you to make this happen. And God says, no, let's, let's take inventory for a second. Because here's the thing. He's already given us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. He's already given His only begotten Son so that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He's already given us breath in our lungs. He's already given us life in our bodies. So what more do we expect Him to give us? I think sometimes we come to God and I say, God, would you do this for me? And he said, I ain't doing nothing until you do something with what I've already given you. 
I'm not about to take a step for you until you walk into the purpose that I've already given you. And so what does that look like? I mean, we bring these good needs to God and we say, I need a better marriage or I need a better family. I need my kids to love me more. I need to get out of debt. I need a greater career. And we bring all these things before him and we lay out and we say, all right, God, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to take care of that? And so, you know, God, I need you to reinsert love into my marriage. Miraculously make it happen. Boom. You know what God says? His answer, his answer to that prayer is, what are you doing Friday night? Come on. Why don't you schedule a date night with your spouse? No. But no, God, I need you to reinsert love. He said, no, what do you have in your house already? What is it that you can use? You say, God, I need you to get me out of debt. I'm tired of paying these student loans. I'm tired of my car loan. And so tomorrow when I go to the mailbox, in the name of Jesus, there's going to be a check there. God, would you let Shekinah Bank just electronically transfer funds into my account and tomorrow everything's going to be good. That's the prayers we pray. But what God says is actually I've worked it out to where you can pick up a few extra shifts at work. And I've got some side jobs that are ready for you that that you can go get. And actually, you don't have to go to Starbucks every day. And instead of going out to eat at lunch, you could actually bring a lunch with you. And you could actually set up your budget and you could try to pay some stuff off. I know that y'all are not like, amen, that's good. That's good preaching. I understand. Because I want the big moments too. But you will live an entire life without experiencing the miraculous if you always look for the big moments. He embraced being different. He embraced looking in things that nobody else was looking at and seeing God in them. And so I feel like what God wanted me to ask you today is what's in your house. Because here's the thing. Sometimes when we ask God for something significant, He asks us to identify something in our possession that has significant potential. So rather than asking God, I need a new job, ask him, how can I thrive in the one that I'm in? Rather than looking for a new spouse, love the one you have. Rather than saying, God, would you just make my kids better? Start training them. Start raising them. That, that hit me as well, y'all. I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. As I said it, I was like, Tyler, slow down, bro. Slow down. It's in the small things. It's in the little things. So you want to know how to have a move of God? Embrace delay. Be willing to take a back seat when it feels like you ought to be in the front. And then embrace being different. Begin to look for and set your radar up to identify the miraculous in the middle of the mundane. Because when he gives this widow the objective to go and get some containers. Can you imagine going to your neighbor? Hey, I can't go into all the detail, but I need some money, and so do you have any Tupperware? It's awkward. It's not enjoyable. It's not attractive. Nobody's going to sign up to do that. But she does it. And when it's all said and done, not only are her debts paid, but she has enough for her and her sons to live on. And it all starts 
with going in the cabinet and grabbing a container. What is it that's in your house right now? What is it in your life right now that if you started cultivating it with the help of a divine God that wants to be involved? What is it that when you brought it to Him, you said, God, I can't do anything with this. It's simple. It doesn't mean anything. But if you get involved in it, there's no telling what that thing could grow into. Maybe, just maybe, the thing that could unlock prosperity and wealth and blessing and everything you've been praying for is in something that's hidden in your cupboard somewhere that you haven't even thought about touching for years. It's in the small things. Embrace being different. What's in your house? Because it may be the thing that you've passed over hundreds of times that possesses the potential to reveal the miraculous in your life. 